Hey, I want to start this week with a quick story. After months of interviewing creators on this show, I've started to really see some patterns. In fact, I'm working on a patterns episode behind the scenes right now. But a recent pattern has been the impact that social media has played in the success of so many of these guests. And for every guest who speaks on the power of social media, there seems to be another guest who cautions against depending on social media too much since you have little control over those platforms. But the world isn't binary. Things aren't always black and white. And I've become more and more convinced that the real magic is somewhere in the middle, acknowledging the power of social media while also actively building your business to be more and more resilient against it. If you look at the two mediums I spend most of my time in, it's writing and audio. So as you may expect, I'm much more of a Twitter person than I am an Instagram person. And every time that I devote some time to sharing my ideas on Twitter, good things happen. I've met so many people on Twitter, including some of the guests on this show. And in July, I shared a thread on my birthday that actually went viral with more than a million impressions. My following nearly doubled overnight. So I asked myself, how can I push myself to invest more time into sharing on Twitter? And knowing myself, external accountability is what pushes me to take action. When I tell someone else that I'm going to do something, then I know that I'll follow through. So I sent out a short thread on Twitter a couple weeks ago talking about my idea for a Tweet 100 challenge. Following in the footsteps of Lalise Stamps, I wanted to take on a 100-day challenge on Twitter. Just one good tweet a day would give me 100 good tweets over 100 days, and it felt manageable. And I invited others to participate too. All I needed to do was join the challenge for free at tweet100.com and then use the hashtag Tweet100 for my public leaderboard to track their progress. I'm really proud of this leaderboard. It's built with Zapier and Airtable, and it shows how many days you've tweeted, your follower growth, and more. It's all automatic. And this challenge has blown up. More than 500 people from all over the world are taking part, tweeting more than they were ever before, building relationships, and growing their following. So this week, I wanted to inspire you to join this Tweet100 challenge And I'm going to share a couple episodes of the show talking about the power of Twitter to get you started. Today's episode is with David Perel, one of the first guys, in my opinion, to really show what's possible with great writing on Twitter. But first, I want to invite you to go to tweet100.com to learn more and join the challenge. It's totally free, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. That's tweet100.com, and the link is in the show notes. Okay, let's get to that interview with David right after this. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. I've basically failed at every institutional game I've ever played. Just a full on F. Like whether it's trying to take standardized tests, did horribly on those. Whether it was trying to get good grades, did horribly on those. 
And I guess at some point I realized that I could use the internet to create my own games and create games that were designed for me to win at them. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. It's amazing, as always, to have you here. If you've been following the show for a while, you may have noticed that I have a slight bias towards writers. I'm sorry, I think of myself as a writer, and so I tend to be a little bit skewed in that direction. But don't worry, I'm working on it. And as a quick aside, I love guest recommendations. So if there's someone you want to hear from, tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. But speaking of writing and speaking of Twitter, today's guest is David Perel. I met David a couple years ago in Columbia, Missouri, while throwing axes at an event called Capital Camp. But before that serendipitous in-person meeting, I had been following him on Twitter. In fact, a lot of people have met David through Twitter, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, I love Twitter in terms of what it's given me. It is probably the most important platform in my life. Twitter is a really interesting platform. If you haven't really put much time or energy into it, you may think of it as a place where people share really short, sort of dull updates about their own life and activities. Some of my early tweets said things like making a sandwich or going to the football game. But Twitter has changed a lot over the last few years. And now it's where I basically get all of my breaking news. It's how I keep up with trends, and it's even how I connect with people for this show. But even still, Twitter is a lot of different things to different people. Oh, I have a lot of ways to describe it. So I think Twitter first is a library. I think that it's a place where people come together where you can find a bunch of different ideas sort of all in the same space. And you can crawl through these little labyrinths and you can end up in German history. Then you can end up in philosophy. Then you can end up in art history. Then I think it's a conference, a place where you get to choose the speakers, you get to be a speaker and go from being really an attendee to someone who has a small booth and a big booth and you're a speaker. And then I think that it is sort of like a social club. I mean, most of my friends I meet through Twitter. Over the last couple of years, I've been telling myself that I need to take Twitter more seriously. It seems to be a really great platform to get your ideas in front of people, and that is modeled by David better than just about anybody else. In the time that I've been telling myself to take Twitter more seriously, my Twitter following has grown from somewhere around 3,000 followers to 4,300 followers. Meanwhile, I've seen David's following balloon from somewhere around 40,000 followers to 140,000 followers. He really knows how to stand out on Twitter. If I were giving advice to someone who is new to the platform, I would say tweet a lot. Spend less time consuming Twitter than you think and actually try to DM and meet the people who you end up creating relationships with. That's really what it's about. David does a lot more than tweet. He's built quite a name for himself as a writer. In fact, his Twitter bio reads the writing guy in quotes. He has an online school called Rite of Passage. That's right with a W. And in Rite of Passage, he says, you will learn a step-by-step method for publishing quality content and distributing your ideas to your professional network, 
leading to unexpected opportunities and increased serendipity in your work and life. The course has had students from Google, Facebook, Twitter, Goldman Sachs, Intel, and more. Those students rave about the experience when given the opportunity. And as we'll hear, the course isn't cheap. It's $4,000 to $6,000 per student. So in this episode, we talk about David's approach to education, quitting institutional games to create your own, how to use Twitter, and how writing can generate serendipity. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. And if you haven't joined our private Facebook group yet, I'd love for you to do so now. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's talk with David. Basically, for a couple of years, I probably spent 30, 40% of my waking hours on a golf course. And I was extremely driven to practice and try to improve. And basically, I've uh, through that experience, I realized something quite peculiar about myself. I'm extremely analytical and not numbers driven at all. And you don't usually find that. And I think most of the interesting things that you end up learning about yourself or achieving or things that are happening in the world kind of come out of these weird idiosyncrasies in the way that a company is built, a country is founded, or a person's personality comes to the fore. And so I was trying to dissect every aspect of the game, how to play better, shoot lower scores, and do it in a very efficient way. And I ended up not being quite talented enough to play at a professional level, which was always my goal. But I ended up studying the physics of how to play golf, ended up having these very strict rules for myself with how I was going to practice, what I was going to do on the driving range, ended up working with some coaches, studying the the biomechanics of the golf swing, using military-grade launch monitors to measure my my ball flight. I mean, just crazy things for a high schooler to be doing. And I think that that ended up setting up a lot of the thinking and routines that I now use as a writer. Yeah, it kind of sounds like you had this instinctual interest in like feedback loops or appreciation of feedback Mm. loops to very quickly understand like, well, if I swing this way or if I hit at this launch angle, here's what happens. Were you out there on your own a lot? Were you like, were you going with like a parent? No, it's just out there on my own. I would, I remember days where I would show up with stars in the sky and leave with stars in the sky. And I was just hanging out there. Uh, The club I was at had this great cheeseburger that was delivered in the shape of a hot dog. And it was sort of famous. And so I just crush those cheeseburgers and try different ways of putting condiments on those cheeseburgers and then spend the rest of the day just playing golf. And I had a couple of friends out there who were professional. And through them, I ended up picking up a lot of the ways that they did things. But ultimately, it was really just me, myself and I out there just alone, sort of like how I like to work. I like to be sort of just work alone. I don't really like working with teams and I'm very sort of self-motivated. And once I sit down to do work, whether it's golf, whether it's I'm now taking tennis really seriously now, or whether it's writing, I I really just don't get distracted. I can get into a flow state very fast. And I just love the challenge of competing against myself and relentlessly striving to improve at something. So I ended up playing division one golf my freshman year. And 
I ended up realizing that I just wasn't quite good enough, which was a really difficult moment in my life and ended up just being a very unhealthy next 12 to 18 months. And eventually I realized that, well, I became sports director for the local television station for my university. And that was really intense because hmm. we took it really seriously. And every week we had to produce a five minute live television segment. And then at the same time, I was anchoring a show that aired on ESPN two throughout the state of North Carolina. And so this was back when I was a sophomore in college and there was quite a bit of responsibility that came with that. And I almost got kicked out of my fraternity for really bad grades because <laughs> I got a two, three my freshman year. And uh, it could be worse. my parents were really worried about me. They wanted to take me out of college. And I guess that sort of through those experiences, I think that one of the big ones was school. I basically failed at every institutional game I've ever played, just a full on F, like whether it's trying to take standardized tests, did horribly on those, whether it was trying to get good grades, did horribly on those. And I guess at some point I realized that I could use the internet to create my own games and create games that were designed for me to win at them. And... I was so bad at the traditional games that it actually ended up being advantageous. I sometimes think that the worst thing you can be when it comes to those traditional ways of living life and building careers is mediocre because if you're really good at them, well, then the red carpet is just laid out for you. I mean, there's quite a bit of competition, but you could go to Harvard Law, then you could go to Goldman Sachs and you can sort of work your way up in these very defined paths that you know are going to pay well. You can go be a doctor. Then if you're really bad at them like me, you're just like, well, okay, I got to invent my own games here. But I think that when you're mediocre, you sort of end up in this place where you're in these really bitter scenarios of trying to compete for select few spots and you are so responsive to what everybody else is doing and just sort of following the path and not really listening to yourself, what you want to do, how you want to live. And I think those outcomes can be pretty pernicious. That's a really interesting insight because you're right. When you're, when you're kind of in the middle of the pack, it's like, what do you do? You just keep getting rejected from the things that you're trying to be ambitious and apply at the top of the line for things. You believe in yourself enough in this game that you're going to keep trying. <laughs> it does sound kind of, kind of brutal. I had no idea that you, you did basically journalism. Sounds like you were you know, involved in media and coverage. And I spent some time there. And what I walked away with was just a huge respect for deadlines. Because like you had to have stuff done and to the editor by this time or it didn't run and your entire process was wasted and also your editor's pissed. <laughs> Did you have like a similar experience? Yeah, I think so. I think that, well, I had to go live every Monday and I remember a lot of those Sunday nights in the editing room and those editing rooms are like a Vegas casino where you really don't know what time it is. So it'll be like 4 a.m. and it'll feel like 10 or it'll feel like 10 and actually be... 4 a.m. And the only way that we knew what time it was, was we would always go to the sandwich shop across the street and we would get a milkshake and a sandwich at like 1230 at night. And it was open till one. It was called Acorns and it was delicious. And we'd come back to the editing room and we were just all kind of in it together. But, you know, I think deadlines are, are, are really, I'm very ambivalent about deadlines and ambivalent does not mean, which is what I originally thought, that you felt sort of wishy-washy about something. It means 
that you are ambivalent. So it's like ambi, like ambidextrous. So you feel both very strongly about the good sides of deadlines and very strongly about the bad sides of deadlines. And that's how I feel. I feel very ambivalent about deadlines. On one hand, I think that being prolific and creating things all the time is at least when you get started, the thing to do. I think that you want to, I mean, I've in a stretch right now, I've published an article every single day for like the last 45 days. I have a very strict routine and cadence with myself. This morning, I didn't feel like writing. I ended up sitting down writing and banging out an article in a couple of hours. And I think that that is really good for your creative spirits. At the same time, I think that there's a convexity to great work in that a lot of the great pieces that have been written, a lot of the great concerts that have been sung, artists that have been created, albums that have been created, they were done in a remarkably short amount of time. I was listening to the new Logic album yesterday, and he made that whole album in a series of four days. Now, there was some time after where he ended up doing a lot of editing. But I think that there's this sort of spark, this firework of inspiration that comes out in great work. And that's the problem with deadlines. You don't allow yourself to tap into the convexity of greatness. And I think that the daily production of stuff is really good for building a career on the internet. And I think that it's a great place to start as a creative. I don't know that it's the right place to end. I think that, you know, if you look at someone like Nassim Taleb, he takes a sabbatical every three years or so, writes a book sort of whenever four to eight years, but like doesn't really have strict deadlines. And I think that there's something that's beyond the deadline. And there's also something very inhuman about deadlines. You know, once before the clock was invented, we ended up just, I learned last night, we used to sleep for 11 hours a night. And we used to just do things because we felt like doing them. We we're much more qualitative. And the clock has a way of this sort of oppressive hand on the human soul. And it says, no, you will do something now because it is the time to do that, not because you feel like doing it. And I think that that's the downside of deadlines. So I really struggle with that. Totally. I also feel ambivalent about them because the power, the power is like, if you trust yourself to know that when I commit to a thing happening, it's going to happen. Like that's power. And so with that power, I think comes the decision and the discernment of when do I impose a deadline on myself or not? I feel like that's the, that's the kind of gray area in the game that you got to play with yourself if you're feeling this ambivalence. When we come back, we dive deep into David's journey with Twitter and what he's learned along the way, right after this. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. 
Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. Welcome back. David has made quite a name for himself over the last few years as the writing guy. But up to this point, we haven't really talked much about writing. So I asked David when he became interested in writing. That was well after college. I mean, I was a horrible writer growing up, just atrocious, embarrassingly so. Even when I was working, a lot of the feedback was, hey, you're not a great writer. And I think that the realization that writing could be so transformative as a medium and as a ritual, that far preceded my ability to write well. And so that ended up happening a couple years after I graduated from college, began to write and write, and then cool things happened. And then sort of like you, what you were saying earlier, you get on these feedback loops where good things begin to happen, you try to get better at it. And with writing now, I, I've I've developed a lot of those same analytical ways of thinking about things. I mean, I've developed a whole system for how to think about writing and every day just come up with one new idea of, okay, what is something that we can think about to write better? So today I came up with an idea called the three deadly sins of writing. And it's funny, you just make them up and then they start becoming words that people use. And so those are weak, wasted, and redundant words. Yesterday was like the personal monopoly investor. Then I was talking about the paradox of abundance last night. I have a note card right in front of me called lateral thinking with withered ideas. Like there's just my whole room is filled with note cards of just different ideas, new ways of thinking about writing that are hopefully fresh and that are very empowering. There's a line from James Clear and he says something along the lines of simple ideas make it easy to execute. And I've always thought that he was very right about that, about simple ideas is sort of what you need when it comes to actually creating something. And so I try to just make my writing and the rules that I use very simple. I think that compared to books like Strunk and White and a lot of the other writing classics, the way I think about writing is just a lot more simple. David has embodied these simple rules of writing through his Twitter account. One of his most popular tweets reads, Business Writing 101. Shorten your sentences. Make your point fast. Shorten the introduction. Use simple words. Add graphs and statistics. No buzzwords. Use more periods, fewer commas. Write for skimming, not deep reading. Bold the main takeaways. 
Writing has had a huge impact on David's life. In fact, David wrote in an essay, quote, Writing is the best kind of networking. By making it easy for people to find you online, you'll create a vehicle for serendipity. It's pretty obvious that writing on Twitter has been a huge vehicle of serendipity for David. So I wanted to talk about that journey. So I signed up for the first time on Twitter in 2011. My friend Avi Stricker, my junior year of high school, said, hey, you got to get on this platform. I got on, thought it was there was nothing to it. And honestly, I was probably right. Twitter in the early days was really kind of a mess. It wasn't good. There was no engagement when you did write a tweet. The syntax was really weird. And then I got on Twitter again in about 2014. And it was quite a different platform. It's changed a lot more since then. So the the rate of change on Twitter has been a compounding curve. And I remember following Mark Andreessen, who is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and he's brilliant. And I remember having the sensation of sitting on my bed in college after spending the day in these atrociously boring lectures, just delivered by people who weren't subject matter experts and who were giving me the world's best education for 1995. And it was 20 years outdated. And I remember going to those lectures just saying the world that they think we're living in doesn't exist anymore. And opening up Twitter and having at the speed of light ideas transmitted from Mark's fingertips across cables that had been laid around the world and into my hands and straight into my brain and to have space and time collapse like that and to realize at a very philosophical level how transformative that was and what that would mean for the future of idea creation knowledge management and our lives as humans made me say wow this is happening on twitter and where I was living in a town of 5,000 people, this was basically neutralized that disadvantage. And I started applying for internships in New York my sophomore year, my junior year. I was getting them through Twitter. And I realized that it was what I later discovered to be the real life manifestation of what Marsh McLuhan called the global village. Twitter is a lot about how you make it. And the problem with Twitter is that the way that the platform angles you in terms of how you use it is directly, precisely not how you want to use the platform. It tells you to follow celebrities. You don't want to follow celebrities. It basically is the cesspool of a civil war of people debating about politics in a way that is so unintelligent and so high school lunchroom and what I do is I just mute all of politics. That isn't to say that being politically disengaged is the best way to live as a human being, but it is to say that if you want to be politically engaged, tweeting back and forth is just not the way to do it. You can't achieve meaningful progress in 280 characters. And what I've done is I've said to hell with the celebrities, to hell with the politics, to hell with the rage, to hell with the drama. And I've said, I am going to go find the most interesting people in the world who 
are thinking about things that other people aren't thinking about. I don't care where they're from. I don't care what they look like. I don't care who they are. I just care that they have interesting ideas. And for me, Twitter is a project of finding those people, building relationships with them, getting to know many of them, and ultimately collaborating on ideas with a lot of them. So far when we've talked about this, you've talked a lot about the benefit of following people, learning from people, communicating with people. It's also a platform that you've really learned how to create on successfully Mm -hmm. for yourself. So how do you think about balancing the way that you engage on Twitter amongst those different ways that you can use it, especially between like consumption versus creation? Yeah. So basically creation on Twitter is vastly underrated. Consumption is overrated. So the goal with Twitter is always to consume less and produce more. That is always a constant struggle. The production part is a constant struggle because you want to come up with ideas that are both novel and well-compressed. So that is where I'll focus on for how to create well on Twitter. And I go over a lot of this in my course called How to Crush It on Twitter. And the novelty aspect is you want something that feels new and you want something that feels fresh. And that then basically is what the platform is sort of geared towards. People saying, huh, I've never thought of that before. Huh, I didn't know that. So that's the first place to begin. And then the second thing is well compressed. And so what you want to do is have a lot of knowledge that is taken into that 280 characters. And that can either be something like a summary, like you read an S1 of a company, and then you say, here are all the main highlights in one tweet. Oh, great. Thank you very much. You just saved me 50 minutes of reading that S1, and now I have all the main points. The other way that I think is more interesting, and this is the real art of Twitter, is finding something that is generalizable and interesting. And what I mean by that is, the thing is, the line between this and a fortune cookie is very thin, but this is where a lot of people who are good at Twitter, they they thrive. They have ideas based on experiences, based on realizations that they have of just like fundamental ways that the world works. I remember one tweet I read one time, if the news is fake, imagine history. Six words or so, and it's an unbelievably profound idea. An unbelievably profound idea. And I think about that all the time. And I think that that is then what you want to go for, that novelty and that compression. And then when it comes to consuming on Twitter, like I said, get rid of the rage, get rid of the people who are angry and bitter and cold and ungenerous and get to a place where you're finding ideas that you wouldn't find elsewhere on the internet. People are very experimental and I value interestingness on Twitter as much as I value truth. And I start with that. Like what is interesting? What is sort of priming my imagination? What sort of gets my brain going and what begins to create a thread that then I can pull on over time? And Ultimately, the algorithm has gotten pretty good in terms of finding interesting ideas. It rewards things that are popular more than it rewards things that are interesting, which I wish wasn't the case. But Twitter, if you open it a couple times a day, I think it is a real net positive. And any more than that, it becomes a net negative. How has your opinion on that changed over time as like you've gotten more successful and you've put 
a ton of time, it seems, into Twitter. Do you ever feel like, gosh, I'm spending too much time on Twitter? Yeah, all the time. Like more, more so than before? All the time. I'm not sure it's more so than before. It's just that Twitter itself has become a lot better at hacking your attention. You basically, we live in a world where the smartest people are working to create platforms that create these Pavlovian responses in people that make them addicted to using the platforms. And Twitter is really good at that. And there's little things like the notifications tab always takes a while to load. And when they studied Pavlov, it was the actual, the Pavlovian rats, it was the actual uncertainty that created the addiction. Once the rats didn't know if they were going to get the sugar or not, that's when it really became addictive. And it was just, it's the same thing on Twitter. And also, Twitter has created virality and built it into the platform now in ways that it wasn't there three or four years ago. The spiciest takes, the hottest tweets, the ideas that spark a charge out of people are rewarded now because they can spread farther like they didn't used to be. You know, Twitter didn't always have this sorted algorithmic feed. It used to just be chronological. There were people who called themselves Twitter completionists. They would read every single tweet from every single person that they followed. And now who you follow, it just doesn't matter that much. You end up seeing the best tweets sort of no matter who they're from, as long as they're sort of in your circle. It used to be if you didn't follow someone, you didn't see the tweet unless somebody that you followed retweeted that person. What are the moments to you looking back that stand out where you realize like, oh, I can really do something on this platform or people are really starting to pay attention or I think I figured something out here. I think that there were a couple. One of the big ones is just how successful Red of Passage has been. And we do all, at least the vast majority of the marketing through Twitter. And that is sort of a constant surprise. The next one is how many people I've met or have recognized me on the streets from Twitter and just realizing that that Twitter is sort of real in a way that is hard to remember. I was in Detroit last summer and a guy came up to me on the street at night. It was like Thursday night and he comes up. He goes, are you David Perel? I was like, yeah. And I was with a friend and he had been running a podcast about the state of Michigan and I was there to explore the state of Michigan. So he took us out the next day for lunch and ended up showing us the city. And Twitter's an amazing matching tool for people. Like if someone follows me on Twitter and they know me well enough that they come up to me on the street and they say, hey, are you David? They're, they're almost always awesome. And he ended up showing us what what Detroit was all about. And then I think that that same thing in terms of being able to reach out to other people, you know, having the ability to have conversations with people on the internet and then say, hey, let's hang out in person is really cool. I bet I've met 100, 200 people through Twitter. Uh, by my roommates I met through Twitter at my last two apartments and basically all my friends come through Twitter. I mean, it's like a whole it's like a whole social world for me because I just put ideas out into the world and people come back and the people who end up following the people who end up engaging end up just being fascinating in the kinds of ways that I would never find fascinating people if I'm just hanging out in the physical world. If there's somebody listening to the show who's like 
a future Twitter famous creator. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you wish you would have known a couple years ago about what sucks about being in that position that they should be (laughs) wary of? It doesn't really suck. It just, I mean, you got to be careful with the things that you say, of course. And it's always like sort of jarring when just how many people are out there. But no, it's amazing. Like it's, I mean, I'd never want to be actually famous, but having people who know who you are, who share your interests is awesome. And it really makes life a hell of a lot better. You can meet amazing people and have these conversations that, that, like I said, you wouldn't be able to have in with most people in physical reality. But in terms of big downsides, there really aren't a lot of them. After the break, David and I talk about creating your own games and his online school, Rite of Passage. So stick around and we'll be right back. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and is hard to say out loud, using your .bio domain for your link in bio lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at Porkbun. Yes, it's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com slash creator. That's P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com slash creator. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken, and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the anti-loud obnoxious conference with no more than 50 people who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business. Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club slash summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club slash summit. One last time, that's trs.club slash summit. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple Podcasts of all time. 
and is hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur, and he shares real-world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about the $100 MBA show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in the $100 MBA's archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA Show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to my conversation with David Perel. Earlier in this conversation, David told me that he had failed just about every institutional game that he had ever played. He said that he realized instead of playing other people's games, he would create his own games that were designed for him to win. So I asked him what those games looked like. I am a very lumpy person in my skill set. So I'm really bad at basically everything except for coming up with a bunch of creative ideas and consuming high quality information, sort of storing and organizing those ideas, and then having a system in my life where then I can turn them into other high quality ideas and share them. So I know I'm really good at that and I could play that game forever. And so what I wanted to think about was how could I have a career where I would basically have my youth be an advantage rather than a disadvantage, have a career where I was paid to learn and communicate ideas as much as possible, and have a career where I would be surrounded by the most interesting people in the world. And my tolerance for boredom is extremely low. Like I get bored as fast as anyone I've ever met. And so my bar there for interestingness is very high. So I basically wanted those three things. And then I never wanted to work for anyone or ever have a boss. After I got laid off from my first job, I basically said, I I just am not, not going to be working under an authority figure ever. So I had to figure out how to merge those four things together and you know it took a little while to figure out what exactly that looked like but now that i have a school called rite of passage where i teach people to write my incentives are quite aligned in terms of i do better financially when i write great essays when i have lots of really interesting conversations and what I know that I can do sort of disproportionately from, from other people is just continue to show up every single day and be quite distinct and hopefully high level in my thinking and just, just keep going. And consistency has never been hard for me. That's not exactly what you're saying, but I've been thinking about this a lot. For people getting started, it feels like you kind of need to do this small amount of creative output constantly for a period of time to get people to pay attention. But these bigger projects like books or films or video series, like a lot of people are really drawn to that. And that takes a lot of time in the cave. And it's so hard to start there and get any attention. Yeah, I think that, I mean, sort of what you're saying there is about is about the external stuff, like the attention, how other people are going to respond. And I'm sort of here, Trish, trying to get at this sort of internal stuff of 
what you feel as a creator and what it takes to do outstanding work. Getting your messages spread is, of course, very important. In there's a saying that first-time founders focus on product, second-time founders focus on distribution. And I think that there's an element of truth in that for writing too, that when you first-time writers focus on, oh, the quality of the work, second-time founders focus on distribution. But then I almost think that there's a third time where then you get back to focusing on the product. And that's sort of where where I'm really trying to think here of what do you need in order to be the best creative that you can be? And I think that from watching and teaching hundreds of people to write in the past 18 months, the problem when people first start out is they think that every article that they publish is like the biggest deal ever. And they feel these two very polarizing opinions at the same time, which can't possibly both be true. And it's hilarious. They they at once feel like they're going to publish something and everyone is going to watch them and the world is going to descend on them. And all of a sudden they're going to be exposed as a fraud because so many hundreds of people are reading their writing and they realize that you don't actually know anything about the world and that you're actually a really bad thinker and that you're basically just suck as a human being. So they think that. And then at the same time, they're really mad that no one's reading their writing. And they're like, I'm shouting into crickets of indifference and I have no readers and I go on my website and I had three people in the last month and this whole writing on the internet thing doesn't work. So both of those things can't be true, but they feel them both. And I think that when you first start, just due to the way that you feel like you're under a spotlight when you first start writing, you just gotta be sort of prolific and go, 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 sort of get get your reps in and just feel what works for you, what doesn't, what do you enjoy, what don't you enjoy. But then what I'm grappling with right now is exactly what you said about deadlines. How much of them do I want? What kind of deadlines do I want to set for myself? Are they just production oriented sort of on the inputs or are they just focused on the outputs? And the jury's still out on that. I suspect it's very dependent on the actual creator. Totally. It feels like every time you go through a wave of like, oh, well, I wish I would have known this 12 months ago because I would have done things differently. You actually still needed to do that thing for 12 months mm -hmm. for you to even have the opportunity to do things differently or mm -hmm. doing it differently and having it be meaningful. You mentioned Rite of Passage and I recently tweeted about, hey, what are you guys thinking about online courses recently? And I got a ton of people saying Rite of Passage is amazing. Mm. So for somebody who, you know, you said that you, you failed these institutional games and you didn't love college, how have you thought about constructing Rite of Passage to be a different game that helps people in a different way? Yeah, so I was talking about creating my own games and I always just, one thing with the internet is it's, it's, it's so big that it really just helps to be opinionated in intelligent ways and to build the thing that sort of you just wish existed. I hated school. I think school sucks for a lot of people. And it actually is very traumatizing for a lot of kids. And like myself, I think school was such a net, net, net negative in my life. And going to school, those were some of the worst days of, of, of my life. I just despised being in a classroom, despised taking tests, despised the authority of a teacher and the way that you had to just sit there and do this performative learning. And 
what I said was I was sitting in school and I remember thinking to myself so many times, I can do something much better than this. And I think right of passage is quite a bit of what do I wish existed in a course. And I think a lot about who are the teachers that really influenced me because everyone gets to know each other and students get to know me. I'm incredibly animated in, in rite of passage, which I think makes it fun. I have a little level of energy that I basically just save for those really special five weeks. The people are fantastic. And then I spend my whole life thinking about different ways to write and I do all of that so I can serve my students. And we have 16 live sessions in 33 days. We have four other live writing sessions where people complete from start to finish an article in two hours and they say, what, how in the world did I do that? And when it comes to writing communities, there's there's nothing else like it in the world in terms of just the passion and the energy and the intensity of the experience. You know, I the world is really gone towards a trend of lower and lower standards. And I think that this is one of sort of, you could say, the the end result of a world of liberalism. That sort of anything goes, you're going to have low standards. What ends up happening is you get to these places where, you know, it's sort of like online dating. Like it's just fine where you can just cancel whenever you want. Or it's sort of like Airbnb. You can just like, hey, I don't really feel like coming in three days. Uh, it's not an issue. And then even a lot of the online communities like Reddit, you know, you can be in a Reddit subreddit or you cannot be in a subreddit, but there's no real cost. And I think a lot of the world has just become frictionless to a fault. And so what we tried to do with Reddit Passage was rather than making it really easy, we make it really hard. Rather than making it frictionless, we make it friction and filled. Rather than making it cheap, we make it really expensive. And we go through all of these paradigm shifts and inversions in terms of how the world works. And you end up with a group of a couple hundred people from 30 to 35 countries who get together and all of them do it so that they can learn how to write, so they can improve their thinking, so they can build relationships, so they can meet like-minded people. And teaching that is what I've always wanted to do because it, what, it is what didn't exist in school is where school was sort of all about the syllabus and telling you exactly what you wanted to do when you needed to do it. Write a passage is much more about, hey, you can do whatever and we're going to have deadlines for you, but we're not going to punish you if you don't follow through on them. You're an adult rather than having, hey, here's a diploma at the end. No, the, the success in Write a Passage is are you able to meet people, become a citizen of the internet and continually write after you leave the course. And we have, I basically took all the things that I despised about traditional education, flipped them on its head and said, this is how education should be. Was there anything that you, maybe in like the first version of Rite of Passage or something, something that you thought would work that didn't work? Yeah, so the first version, what we tried to do was write a one really long form essay and it just was a total flop. So basically the whole idea in Write a Passage is that the ultimate goal of writing online is ultimately to build a personal monopoly to be the only person who does what you do. And so it's like, okay, that makes perfect sense. So what we should do is we should have every student write two articles in the first two weeks. And then, because five weeks, we'll, they'll spend the last three weeks writing a 
5,000 word essay on the topic of their, of their choice. Basically, nobody did it. It was really hard. And I think this gets back to what we were talking about early in terms of the convexity of creativity, where what you need and what we saw was you produce, 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 you go under some kind of strict deadline, you just go through the cycles over and over and over again. And then much later, you write that long form essay. I ended up doing a fellowship because I wanted to see how it would look to take a group of people and have everyone write long form essays. But yeah, that was a total flop the first time. Now we just have people focused on writing one article per week. And then what we've ended up doing is every single student gets split up into a group with a student mentor and all those groups like 20 to 30 people. And within those groups, everyone's helping each other, giving each other feedback. And so that's very inspired by when I was going to college, my dad said, paradoxically, in a small environment, you will make more friends. So it's like, oh, you know, go to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, there'll be 50,000 people and make so many friends. That actually wasn't it at all. My dad went to a small liberal arts school and through that experience, he ended up having incredible friends that he's still in touch with 45, 50 years later, whereas my mom ended up going to a big public school and I just saw that her friends from college weren't quite as strong. And so that's what we've tried to do with those mentor groups. We want to take a big course and make it small because that is where me really meaningful relationships happen. With Rite of Passage and with the writing you do in your newsletter and your podcast, you, you've started to really diversify the ways that you are creating mm -hmm. on the internet. How intentional has that been versus just wanting to follow your interests? Honestly, just wanted to follow my interests. I, I'm not that intentional about things. I think that I'm intentional about things in retrospect. So I sort of see what works and then I codify things, but I always make sure that my intuition is driving the show. And also part of it is just almost like a personal R&D of, hey, this or that thing is interesting to me. Let me go pursue it. Like right now, I'm in a phase where I'm just writing a new article every single day. Well, we'll see if that works. Now there's these principles that I do absolutely follow, such as I want people to cross what I call the public to private bridge, where people find me on public platforms like YouTube, like Twitter, and then I want them to come into my private platforms, my website, my email list in particular. That's very deliberate. So there are certain things that are at the nucleus of what I'm doing as a creator. But on top of that, I think being too stern in terms and strict with how your hands are on the wheel ends up destroying a lot of the fun of life, the serendipity of it, and the unpredictability of creativity. You know, George Gilder, who wrote about economics and money and sort of libertarianism, he ended up in a book called, I think it was Knowledge and Power or something. And he ended up saying that creativity is surprise. And I really like that definition, where that comes from Claude Shannon, information theory in 1948, when he came up with his seminal paper on information theory, which is the conceptual underpinnings of how you're listening to this podcast right now, in terms of how bits move through time and space and can actually travel to another place. All of that comes from information theory. And what he felt and noticed was that if something wasn't surprising, it was redundant because you already knew that thing. And so Gilder basically took this idea on top of that and ended up saying that all creativity is surprise. If you knew where it was going, 
then it wouldn't be creativity. And so I think that a lot of what it means to be a creator is to balance this arrogance with knowing that you are going to continually create and that that is going to lead to great outcomes over time and to have this Silicon Valley-esque founder dogged belief in the project that you're working on. But then a humility to say, look, I don't know what I'm going to write about sometimes. I don't know what's actually going to come out of me once I try to write. And to get back to a place that I think we need to as humans to, you know, the original word of the, the root of the word genius is genie. People in ancient times, they had this mysticism and this understanding that creativity was unpredictable, that it sometimes came from nowhere. And if you look for too many answers, or at least the wrong answers, you end up constraining your own creativity. I think that you want rigidity in certain parts of the system so that you can have looseness in other parts of the system. Outside of Twitter, what is your media diet like? A lot of books. A lot of books. So I don't consume, I don't read that much. I read surprisingly little. But I basically, a couple months ago, stopped reading about business, stopped listening to podcasts about business, so almost nothing about business. Just about philosophy, and I'm really interested in religion. I'm really interested in, in sort of soul and spirituality. I'm really interested in creativity. I am interested in sort of financial markets and economics, but that isn't like I'm so uninterested in like what this company is doing or what that company is doing and just trying to get much more timeless. I think that that's really what I go for. Like what are these sort of timeless ideas that will be as relevant in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years as they are today? I think that's really what I go for and whether – they're from tweets, from articles, from books. That's, I'm sort of indifferent to that. A couple recommendations I have. I really recommend the browser. It's a newsletter that you can subscribe to that sends five amazing links every single day. And it's just fantastic. I mean, there's no other way to put it in terms of the way that it sort of stretches your imagination. Then just looking for books that come highly recommended from a small group of people but are virtually unknown in the wider world. There's a book called How to Take Smart Notes that's very high on that list. I think the work of Ivan Illich is very high on that list. And just always looking for creators like that. And I mean, even last night I bought a book that was about the shift from thinking how humans used to think of the world qualitatively to quantitatively and how that shifted between about 1250 and 1600. I was like, someone recommended that, said it was a fantastic book. I'd never heard of it. I was like, yes, I, I'll buy that book. And so I think a lot on, on that wavelength. And then also I think that a lot of media consumption is just hanging out with really smart people and always trying to push the limits on that. I haven't found the diminishing re returns to hang out with brilliant people. I think that that is sort of the, the head of the snake for everything else that slithers behind it. Do you think you'll write a book? Yeah, for sure. You have any idea what the subject matter will be? No idea. I'll write it for sure <laughs> when the time is right. <laughs> Well, as if I wasn't already beating myself up for not spending more time writing on Twitter, now I definitely am. It's hard to not be inspired by David's story. 
Here's a guy running a very popular online school, yet he hated traditional education. Here's a guy who was laid off from his last job and now makes a great living as a full-time creator. Here's a guy who was told for years that his writing wasn't very good, and here he is being paid by a lot of people to teach them to write. He's a perfect example of what is possible as a creator online if you believe in yourself, put in a ton of work, and go for it. You can follow David on Twitter at David underscore Perel, one R, two L's, or his website, Perel.com. Links to that as well as Rite of Passage are in the show notes. Thanks to David for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.